I reckon we might um, we might get moving. And if people um, if people can please take your seat as quickly as possible, we'll get started. So it's my very great pleasure at the beginning of this second plenary session to introduce a woman who I don't think needs any introduction to chair this session. Um, Margaret Blakers is my predecessor. Um, as Executive Director of the Green Institute and the founder of the Institute and, and as I say, really um, a woman who needs no introduction. Thank you, Margaret, for agreeing to chair this session. Thanks, everybody, and thanks particularly to Mary for just a wonderful lecture. It's, um, I think, really set us... Oopsie, sorry. Okay, is that better? Um, and thanks especially to Mary for a really wonderful introduction uh, to, the co to the conference and to a really subtle and, and wonderfully intriguing way of thinking about who we are in this country, in this place. And our next speaker is Professor Brendan Mackey, who is Director of the Climate Change Response Program at Griffith University. So he's going to speak for about 30 minutes, which should give us 10 to 15 minutes of questions. So keep your, uh, store up your questions and away we go. Thanks, Thanks. Brendan. Thanks. Thanks, Margaret. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land we meet, the Nunnagal people, and pay respect to the elders past and present and other Aboriginal and Indigenous people here today. There's um, good to see um, you mob here with us. Uh, and, and also I'd like to acknowledge Mary's uh, really, uh, really helpful presentation. Um, uh, uh, I can't think of anyone else uh, in the world who has such command of Western philosophy and is able to apply you know, those intellectual tools of Western philosophy to, to share her insights into Aboriginal philosophy and cosmology and way, way of living. So, you know, it's a real contribution. Thank you. Um, well, I don't need to remind uh, anyone here that um, public policy in Australia and the world globally is generally dominated by short-term thinking, you know. Um, framed by the, by the three to four year political cycles within which our election processes operate. I mean, long term strategic thinking is not unheard of. We have a bit of that in, in, with military expenditure. We're quite happy to allocate, how much is it? 40 billion, 50 billion, 60 billion? I forget how many billion we're allocating for submarines that might be built in the future. Um, and, and, and there's some strategic thinking about, about infrastructure, national infrastructure, roads and, and, and the like. But, you know, I think it's self-evident that short-term thinking dominates. And, and this has many, many consequences. We don't give consideration to the kinds of problems like climate change, which not only are creating impacts now, but, but creating horrific impacts for future generations, which I'll say a bit more about shortly. And, it also makes us blind to the solutions, to many of the solutions to our, to our current, current problems. Of course, we're kind of locked into business as usual approaches. In addition to the kind of current thinking uh, that's dominating the kind of policy thinking that, 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 that we're living with, uh, 
It's not only short-term, it's fragmented. And that's really what I want to address today. So the, the current nation-state model and, and the constitutions and legal frameworks upon which nations are founded and under which we operate um, lock governments into being preoccupied with the narrow view of what constitutes the national good. So I'm very glad that, that um, Mary has, has begun the conference with some philosophical reflections because I kind of want to continue on that, on that theme a bit. Um, so, you know, philosophically, the question of what constitutes the national good depends on, on who we consider to be a member of the community for whom we are legally, morally responsible. I and mean, is it really only those people who are citizens and residents of Australia? What about people in other countries? What about future generations? What about other species? What about ecosystems, for that matter? Great Barrier Reef, koalas, uh, Earth itself. You know, do we really have uh, no legal or moral responsibility to these others? And even if you're totally disinterested in any notion of a, of a greater community of concern um, and have no interest in the welfare of others, however defined, or in the consequences of your actions or inactions on their well-being, can you really operate as if your country you know, is an island? To paraphrase John Don's favourite book, famous book, and even though Australia is an island. Um, can we really afford to conduct our affairs without consideration of those things that connects us to the rest of the world? And of course these two questions, do we have no legal or moral responsibility to others and can we conduct our national affairs as if we're an island, are something of a straw man argument. You know, because we all know the answer is no. But I'm, but I'm proposing it today or raising them if you like, because I want to provide some, perhaps a different kind of explanations why the answer is no why we do have moral and legal responsibilities and why we cannot run our affairs like we're an island. So I, I want to look at this through a, a scientific lens, drawing upon some scientific insights into the nature of life, Earth, the universe, and our place in it. What does science have to say about our relationship to others, other people, species, and future generation? What does science have to say about Earth, our home, how Earth works? and the implications for what we might call the human project is organised and conducted. And we saw, I think, a wonderful case study from Mary about how Aboriginal societies, um, um, how that experiment has been rolling out and how successful it was uh, on this continent. Um, and I just want to say a little bit something about the nature of scientific knowledge to, to, to begin with. because we often... You know, these days in particular, science is equated with technology, right? And of course, technology is very useful to capitalism because it provides you the knowledge and the means to manipulate certain natural processes to great material advantage. Like our smartphone technology is actually based upon quantum mechanics, right? For example. And theories of energy underpin the power systems that generate us. But of course, uh, what I'm interested in is about scientific knowledge, um, whether or not that's applied to technology. There's two people, uh, one of whom, whom everyone will know of, uh, uh, Marie Skodobuska Curie, who's the famous, a famous woman scientist. I put her up because there's actually a lot of famous women scientists, but for some reason she's one of the few that people ever talk about. She's actually Polish, immigrant to France. Um, and John Dewey, who people may not have heard of, who was an American philosopher of science, 
who wrote a lot about uh, a wonderful book that I can recommend called Quest for Certainty, um, which addresses the issue that Mary raised actually of what is the Western world going to do now that um, science is telling us that um, basically we're not here because of some human-created God image. This was the great um, existential crisis that came uh, in the modern scientific era. The first Western scientists believed in God and believed they were revealing the handwork of God. Newton believed in God, that he was revealing the handwork of God. Um, by, by, by the time of Charles Darwin, um, that science had abandoned that notion. And so there was an existential crisis in, in the West, which John Dewey addressed. Anyway, he has a, a, a definition of science I just want to quickly read. because it it, 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 it underpins what I'm going to be talking about. Science identifies, and it's a really terse, really terse definition, it defy, it, science identifies objects based that are intellectually constructed. They're not actually based on common sense. Right? Um, and science converts these intellectually constructed objects to data and then goes on to quantify the relationships between these objects using mathematics um, and other phenomenon uh, and, and tries to explain the underlying causal, causal factors. So the focus of scientific research is on theories about causal factors that explain the relationships between intellectually constructed objects, and this can have nothing to do what, with what you and I experience on a day-to-day -day basis. So scientific knowledge is quite different from other forms of knowledge. Um, common sense, practical experience, moral reflection, spiritual inspiration, and, and, and traditional cosmology. It's one of a number of ways we have of understanding things. Anyway, a, a good place to start about planetary connectivity is to think about what science says about the genesis of our whole universe, um, which is popularly known as the Big Bang Theory, which again has been unfortunately, a term that's been unfortunately appropriated you know, by modern commercial interests because of the TV series, the Big Bang Theory. If you Google the Big Bang Theory, you don't get this equation. <laughs> You get a thing. It was actually first proposed by a, a, French, uh, a French scientist, uh, Georges Lamartre, in 1927, that the expanding universe can be traced back in time to an originating single point about 13.7 billion years ago, a universe which is still expanding today. It's one of these scientific understandings which we all kind of now accept without really thinking about its implications for our understanding of our reality and our place in the universe, namely that according to this scientific Theory, everything in the universe emanates from the same source and consists of energy um, manifesting in different forms under constant change. Actually, this basic idea that all physical phenomena in the universe, physical and biological, including us, uh, are thus connected, has actually been considered by scientists since the Enlightenment, at least in the West. And here's one of my favourite Enlightenment scientists, Margaret Lucas Cavendish, um, another one of these women who's been appallingly denied by history. Uh, she was a philosopher, a poet, a scientist, a fiction writer, and a playwright who lived in the 17th century. And of course, back then we didn't have narrowly defined disciplines, right? If you're in the academy, you, you were a philosopher, you were a scientist, you worked in the humanities, you studied theology, all of these things. The modern academic disciplines started to emerge in the late uh, uh, late 18th century because basically the European, this was the advent of European global colonisation 
and they needed the academies to start giving them tools and methods that would enable them to exploit natural resources. So the discipline of botany was developed so that they could run around the place and find useful plants for commercial purposes, gardening, whatever. And the discipline of geology was founded so they could find useful stuff to dig up and burn or make things with. But this is a great uh, quote of her. She says, I perceive man has a great spleen against self-moving corporal nature, physical nature, although himself is part of her. And, and the reason for this is his ambition, for he would fain be supreme and above all creatures as more towards a divine nature. He would be a god if arguments could make him such. And more recently, there was another uh, wonderful British, British um, scientist, mathematician, physicist, Alfred North Whitehead, who, who said this, uh, recognition that the world is organic rather than materialistic is essential for anyone wanting to develop a comprehensive account of nature. The result is that nature is no longer thought to be simply atoms in the void, but instead a structure of evolving process. The reality is the process. And I find this remarkably um, cognate with much of what Mary was talking about before, about Aboriginal cosmology. And this guy was a serious physicist. He wrote and published the only, what's considered to be the only credible alternative to Einstein's theory of relativity. Still with our gaze to the stars, but closer to home, uh, it's also to consider the birth of our planet itself um, and of our solar systems. And the remarkable thing science is telling us is all of us are made of the same cosmic dust that was created when our planetary solar system was born from a series of supernova implosions. The planet coalesced from this cosmic dust and from them emerged the basic elements of which everything in and of Earth is made. So Earth is made entirely of this cosmic dust and basic elements like carbon that were created by these giant red stars when they imploded. Um, uh, uh, furthermore, Earth uh, is materially a closed system. That means that all this cosmic dust and all the elements and material substances that formed here um, have, gone nowhere, have, have gone nowhere in the last five million years, and none have come in. Earth is materially a closed system. We haven't gained or lost any carbon or any other element. It's open to energy, right? Energy comes and energy goes, but materially it's closed. So the good news is your hippie grandparents or grandparents, as the case may be, were right. Science has confirmed that we are truly indeed children of the universe, literally. So kind of flowing from this idea that Earth is a closed system, um, you know, it logically flows that life on Earth emerged on, emerged on Earth. I mean, it, you know, it, it didn't come by divine intervention. You know, it, a spaceship didn't land here and bring it, you know, five billion years ago. Um, and scientifically, this is explained through the process of biological evolution, which technically is defined as inheritable change in a population. And, you know, in its day, it was one of the most radical scientific theories. It was, it was, it was probably the scientific theory that, that, that um, introduced the, the epoch of modernity. Okay, that's when science abandoned its theological, you know, mission to reveal the handiwork of God. Uh, so the scientific idea that life emerged on Earth, that it emerged from non-life, very important point, we started with what science calls non-life, ended up with life, 
Though Alfred North Whitehead argued that difference was false, we shouldn't be making that difference because it's all one continuum. Anyway, uh, and that it changed form and function through genetic variation and natural selection, the two basic ingredients of evolution, and that humans are but one species in a tree of life. I mean, really, this has. This is staggering. Um, it's no wonder people got upset. But we give little thought of it today because for many, it's an uncomfortable truth. You know, how much of our genes do we share with others, just genetically? So how much of our genes do you think we share with the chimpanzee in terms of percent? There's not much difference. Uh, and of course, when it comes to humans, we share 100%, right? So everyone in this room has identical genome. It's just the phenotypic expression of it differs between populations depending on environmental context. So chimps, what about fruit flies? Have a guess. Eight? 66 or 60%. What about a grain of rice? Stab in the dark. Two, okay. 25%. So here's a quote from another really, again, you know, a sadly ignored British philosopher who's still alive at the age of 80, 98 and still publishing, Mary Beatrice Midgley. Um, and this is a wonderful quote from hers where she was reflecting upon you know, the, the implications of the scientific understanding of biological evolution. We are not aliens on a strange planet. Our history and biology, which places us here, ensures that the facts of this planet have plenty of meaning for us. Interestingly, there's no, um, the theory of evolution, scientific theory of evolution explains how life forms evolve. It actually doesn't explain how life arose from non-life. There is no scientific theory currently which explains how we went from life to non-life. The, the tree of life suggests that we started with very primitive life forms, single cellular life forms, but how did we go from non-life to, to, to those first primitive cellular beings? Uh, there is no scientific explanation of it. And if you think about it, um, as far as we know, this is the only planet in the universe, known universe, that has life, right? We haven't found any from anywhere else. We've been looking around the solar system. Um, so despite kind of the wishful thinking of Hollywood and speculative fiction and what we'd all probably really like, to be really nice, if there were, people find it very appealing. I think because it's really scary to think that in the same way that science is telling us that the universe from arose from a point of singularity, it's entirely scientifically plausible that life arose from a point of singularity on this planet Earth about 3.8 billion years ago. But we don't know. We have no theory that explains it, and we've not, and empirically, we haven't searched much of the universe yet. There's a final bit of scientific kind of theory, which I think is really, really very relevant to the theme of this conference, which, which is about a scientific understanding about how, how, how Earth works as a, as a system. And, and our modern industrial society is, if you think about it, based on a model of Earth that is fundamentally flawed. It's really the idea that Earth is like an engine. And, and system theorists um, make this distinction between complex systems and simple systems. I mean, an engine's complicated, but complicated is not the same as complex. Um, a, a simple system is amenable to our commands and our wishes. If we turn the key, the engine starts. If we hit the accelerator pedal, you know, it accelerates, and if we slam the brakes, 
Um, it stops. Engines are designed, built and maintained by humans, and when they break or wear out, humans can repair them. But the idea that Earth works like a simple engine and can be managed and controlled by humans could not be more wrong, and I suggest it's one of the root causes underlying the global environmental crises we're experiencing. And there's two scientists who have really helped us understand that the reality we face is quite different. And the first is, yes, another woman scientist, um, Donella Meadows. Hands up who's heard of Donella Meadows. Hooray. She uh, was a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She was a systems modeler. And um, you would have all heard of the limits to growth, that first report in 72 um, by the Club of Rome. Well, she, she did all the modelling. In fact, she did the, she, it was her report. She did all the analysis, all the modelling. Um, that was her and her team. Meadows realised that systems like Earth and, the, and, 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 in fact, all the subsystems, when you put people and ecosystems together, people, systems people use this term socio-ecological systems because they're related, it's relationships, again, Meadows realised that these kind of systems are not simple but are complex. In fact, they are complex adaptive systems. Such systems have non-linear responses, which means a small alteration in part of the system can have a big effect in the system overall. They're driven by feedback mechanisms, which can amplify or dampen effects. And they have emergent properties not apparent for their individual components. You've kind of got to step back and watch the whole behaviour. You can't go in and study bits. can't pull out bits of it. And, and understand the system. One of Meadows' key insights was that complex adaptive systems cannot be managed or controlled by humans in any normal sense of the term. Rather, they can only be disrupted and, and if we're lucky, influenced by what she famously called 10 points of leverage in a system. So if you Google Meadows' 10 points of leverage in a system, you'll find a really helpful article. The second scientist, I'm sure, we all know by reputation James Lovelock, who in 1979 published his Gaia theory, which I think is often uh, uh, misinterpreted in that he, uh, if you read his work, he didn't say that Earth was an organism. He said it behaved like an organism and it needed to be treated more like an organism rather than a simple system like an engine. Um, what's really interesting about his theory was it was actually empirically based he was contracted by NASA to build an instrument to go on a satellite that went to Mars and Venus that could, using electromagnetic spectrum, work out what the chemical composition of Earth, uh, of what Venus and Mars was, so it could be compared to Earth. So he designed the instrument, they gave him the data, and he analysed the data, and he was the first person, first human being, to see these numbers as to that, that compared the chemis atmospheric chemistry of Earth Venus and Mars, and what he found was kind of absolutely shattered him. For atmospheric carbon dioxide, Earth, it was like 0.03%, it's now 0.04. Venus, guess what Venus is? 98%. Mars, it's 95%. And if we look at, say, nitrogen, Earth is 80%, Venus is less than 2%, Mars is less than 3%. And if we look at their temperatures, Earth, the average temperature of Earth is about 17 degrees Celsius, Venus plus 477. Right? Those differences can't be explained by the fact that Venus is a bit closer to the sun because you can work out how much hotter the planet would be. It would be a bit hotter, but it wouldn't be 460 degrees hotter. 
It can only be explained by the fact that Earth is full of life and that and Earth's physical environmental conditions, the chemical composition of the atmosphere, the oceans and the land, um, are, are, are entirely um, modulated by life itself. So uh, scientists now talk about the co-evolution of, of life and Earth's physical environment. It, it wasn't that the physical, environmental uh, the, the physical environment changed and, 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 and life changed. These were in a relationship a completely, utterly, totally couple relationship. It was a dance, right? So Earth was originally non-oxidated, right? It didn't have a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere and lots of CO2. So over the course of hundreds of millions of years, that was transformed so that the, so that the atmosphere was full of oxygen, it had hardly any CO2, and life did that, right? That was not physical processes that did it. So life has created and maintains and still maintains the conditions that life needs. I mean, this is extraordinary and it's, and it's been completely validated scientifically. Well, I don't have time to talk about a lot today. Um, I, I just wanted to say something about another way in which we're increasingly connected, which aren't really natural processes, but they're using scientific knowledge, but to create this technology. And these are these global infrastructure networks that enable the international global flow of electricity, fossil fuel, information, manufactured goods, waste materials, capital and human labour. And, and collectively, kind of academically, we refer to these as the, as the infrastructure for global techno-metabolism. Analogous to human body, we've got vascular, nervous and digestive systems. We've now, got, we've now created this kind of global, global techno-metabolism techno metabolism. So every country's economic security is now deeply coupled and dependent upon these global techno-metabolic networks. And they're constantly expanding. Um, and you would have all heard of the China One Belt, One Road, which is a massive uh, land and sea uh, transport infrastructure network being rolled out across um, Central Asia and Europe. I need to say something quickly about, because I'm running out of time, about climate change. Um, where all of this comes together, the natural processes, uh, our global techno-metabolism, is the disruption we've brought to Earth's climate system. Um, the key thing here to understand is even if we stopped all fossil fuel emissions and emissions from deforest degradation uh, uh, today, um, the climate will continue to be disrupted for millennia, and I mean tens of thousands of years, because that's how long it would take natural processes to, kind of re to find a new balance, and this new kind of global balance. So what we can do, though, is limit how, how much more the planet will be disrupted. You know, will the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, 5 degrees, or 7 degrees? If we do nothing, it will keep rising above 10 degrees, right? Etc. Etc. So it's, it is imperative we stop using fo burning fossil fuel. It is imperative we stop um, um, uh, uh, deforestation, forest degradation. Uh, uh, but that's so we can cap the harm. The harm's happening. More harm will continue. We're locked into a metre uh, sea rise this century. Whatever we do. But if we don't act now, it will just get worse and worse and worse. I have to come to my concluding section now, so I have to skip the section when I, where, where I was talk, going to talk about 
the political implications of all of this. There's a day and a half to discuss and there's question time. So to conclude, I, I think it's hard to escape the feeling that um, our societies are becoming more divided and fragmented and, and subsequently powerless, driven by regressive and exploitive influences you know, that sometimes uh, appear unstoppable, unstoppable. The reality, however, is quite different. We, we are connected fundamentally through our evolutionary history, our shared biology, and our dependence on the natural processes that constitute Earth's life support system. And, and I would argue it's now a scientifically defendable fact that the future and survival of humanity depends entirely on our collective ability to reorganise and restructure the human endeavour so that it operates within the safe limits which now can be scientifically defined planetary boundaries. And you've all heard of the term Anthropocene. And I've got a problem with the term Anthropocene, philosophical problem, if it's understood as meaning that humans are now the dominant force on Earth, because that's a complete myth. Um, we have act the, the, the truth is that we have access to great destructive powers, such as thermonuclear weapons. We can powerfully disrupt natural processes, as evidenced by the reality of human force climate change, but we are powerless to control just about anything. Uh, Earth was never ours to control in the first place. Uh, our destructive and disruptive capacities are actually spinning the Earth system and our socio-economic technological subsystems into uncharted waters. The only thing we have any chance of controlling and managing is ourselves, the behaviour of humans and our institutions um, and our behaviours individually and, and, and collectively. And, and we should not underestimate the vector of change in Earth's environmental conditions. Human forced climate change from burning fossil fuel and clearing and degrading uh, ecosystems, um, along with the, the, the complete annihilation of Earth's biodiversity and land and sea, ongoing pollution of soil and freshwater from what are really biotoxins. It's rapidly, rapidly creating a planet, if you think about it, unfit for human and life as we know it. Right? And, and, I, and I would argue this is not speculative fiction or scaremongering. I think it's now scientifically demonstrable. So I don't have time to show you this very cool rotating three-dimensional image of the global governance system. <laughs> so if, if you think about it, we're actually creating a planet whose environmental conditions are deadly for humans, but perfectly suited to machines. Right? It would be very ironic if the technology we use to enrich our lives end up destroying our life support systems and brings about a rapid end to the Anthropocene and the next ep epoch in the history of Earth, the Machinocene. After all, human machines don't need clean air or fresh water. Machines don't care if a casey bloom in spring, if human rights are respected, if whales flourish, or if the climate is benign. So let me conclude with this uh, image of a custom country man, a Kaiapo, member of the Kaiapo tribe, gazing out on his traditional lands in the southern Brazilian Amazon. It's an area of about 8 million hectares, which retains its primary forest only because of the Kaiapo's determination to keep their forest and culture intact because of their traditional obligations to their country. So at the most fundamental level, again, if we think about it, as biological organisms living on this earth that we've evolved and depended upon, uh, it's the breath of life that we have in common. We all <clears throat> enter the world with our first breath 
and it's our last act on death, and it's a biological act we share with all life, well, most of it. There's some anaerobic bacteria and, and, and some other viruses that do strange things, um, leaving them aside. But all of us, humans, along with the greater community of life, share the same existential imperative to keep Earth in a state that supports the breath of life that connects us all. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Brendan. Um, so we've got about 10 minutes for questions. My, my name is Jim Lindsay. Um, we talk about climate change, and yet we have the Trump administration which doesn't believe it. We have this government here in Australia which believes in climate change but thinks coals are a great idea anyway. So what, what can we do to get more people on board and we really have to take action? Yeah. A very good question, one dear to my heart. So, uh, I, you know, it's interesting that you use the word belief because my argument is that climate change is a matter of science. It's, it's, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of does the theory, do our theory, theoretical explanations about how the climate system works and the empirical evidence we have, you know, sufficient to, um, to you know, confirm that the climate's changing and, and in a bad way and, and that, you know, it's anthropogenically caused, and the answer is yes. So when people talk about, when scientists talk about a scientific conses consensus, it's not a social consensus. It's not like the scientists have got in a room and kind of come to some middle ground. It's a consensus between the theory and the empirical evidence from multiple, multiple sources. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, course of time, there's, there's a slide I didn't have time to show. I, I have a quote from Tony Abbott, the quote from his speech last month in London, where he said, you know, CO2's got no nothing to do with it. And an excerpt from a speech Margaret Thatcher gave in November, which was the, the last month of her prime ministership at the Second World Meteorological Organisation, where she said that climate change was the greatest threat facing humanity and that it, it, it would require unparalleled um, international cooperation to solve it. So, so so why is it Margaret Thatcher, one of, one of the most hated politicians, right-wing politicians in UK history, had this such a progressive view in 1996 um, uh, you know, to Well, one of the reasons was she had done a master's in chemistry at Cambridge. Right? So, so she read the WMO reports and I was told by of people. She read them and understood them because she had studied that in like first year chemistry, right? Atmospheric chemistry. The, 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 atmosphere, the science of the atmospheric, the first paper was published like 1896. I mean, you know, chemists have known about this for a long time. So her response was, this is a, this is a technical problem, not a political problem. She set up an all-party parliamentary committee, which stands today. They, they, they set up an a, a, a act, climate change act, to, to, to pass regulations over time. Um, it, so it never became the political football that it did here in the USA. So I think, in answer to your question, I think I think helping, I think ed educating people about the science is really important. Getting people to understand it's not a matter of belief, you know, it's a matter of this kind of sci scientific thinking. It's not a it's not a faith thing, um, and and. Uh, that's part of, of course, part of it is just politics, you know. I mean, who, who knows what Tony Abbott does or doesn't believe? I don't think it matters. I just think he wants to be Prime Minister, right? And so, and, and we know that the fossil fuel industry is doing what the tobacco industry did for 100 years, right? They're employing the same tactics. So we know that there are people 
as I heard Mary say um, at a previous talk, there are mongrels in this world, right? <laughs> and we don't have to love them. Uh, and, and, as, and you also talked about Anna Heret, and Anna Heret also um, um, warned us to be aware of the fact that there are people in this world who deliberately do harm. So, you know, I, th I think half of the solution is in um, education, getting people to understand, you know, that this is a very important, you know, there's a very solid science here. The, the other half is politics. Yeah, uh, my name's John Story. Um, it's a difficult question. I think anyone who's going to plan their life rationally must have some idea of what they think is going to happen in the medium to long future. What do you really think is going to happen in the next 5, 10, 20 years in terms of global uh, environmental evolution? Sorry, do you mean, could you just be a, more about, a bit more specific? Do you mean like kind of from a physical, environmental point of view? You know, no, that, that is a good question. So, you know, it will, will, will a point be reached where the impacts are so um, um, prevalent, you know, everywhere, um, uh, and, and, and so many vested interests and so much capital, you know, is threatened, and, uh, and, and so many people are being harmed in, in so many countries that, you know, the situation flips. The Berlin Wall falls. You know, there's some trigger, um, some moment in time when everyone just, oh well, you know, it's, it's true. We've got to do something about it. I, I can see that happening. You know, the the, the fear. It, well, there's two problems with that. One is, it just these targets that are set. These they're statistics. You know, we want to limit warming to well below two degrees. You know, we want to limit it to 1.5 degree. You know, um, we're already locked into a metre sea level rise by the end of this country. You know, what whatever we do. So the, part of the problem is, yes, there are these immediate impacts. You know, we are going to get more Category 5 cyclones um, um, in places that haven't had them before, um, et cetera, et cetera. There'll be bigger storm surges. You know, a, a, lot, a lot of that's kind of incremental. Um, uh, you know, but the problem is we're then locked in. You know, we, cro we cross the tipping points and we're locked into these long-term changes, which are, you know, which are truly truly horrendous. So I, I, I think that politically it can flip, but I think it will only be after there's so much bad stuff happening that, you know, it's a big wake-up call. But the problem is, you know, if we've reached that tip, you know, it, it means we've passed these planetary tipping points. That's the problem. So this is why we kind of just... It, it, it could be that we could all just sit back and, you know, in 15 years' time, everything's, you know, everything's going to belly up so much that the politics becomes easy. But it's too late then for too many people. Yes. So, so the question was, you know, the pro another, another, an additional critique to mine of the Anthropocene is that it implicates everyone, all humans, you know, even those who have had no, no, um, you know, who aren't implicated in all the kind of harm that's being done, and, and so if we call it the, if we call it the capitalist scene, then you know, point it, it points the finger at who's perhaps more responsible. So yeah, I mean. The, the, the big problem I have with the Anthropocene is that it actually started... It, it was published by a, by a, a geoscientist um, uh, to bring attention to the fact that, you know, the amount of... So much of the chemistry of the atmosphere, there was so much pollution in the soil and, and, and on the land and growing in the sea that um, he felt that the, if in the future people look back in the geological... If scientists 
of the future look back through geological time, they'd be able to see our civilization's signal physically in the geological record. So he said, let's call it the Anthropocene. Um, but you know, my, the argument I have against that is, I mentioned before that Earth went from being a non-oxygen-rich environment to an oxygen-rich one. That was done by these wonderful blue-green algae called cyanobacteria who um, breathed in CO2 and breathed out oxygen. Oxygen was actually waste for them at, at the time. But they, they, um, they, trans they transformed Earth's environment, but we don't call the era they did that in the cyanocene, right? So why, I mean, I, it, but what's happened is people take, has taken a term which was debated in like geophysical unions of the world and given it um, sociological meaning and sociological interpretation. So I think, you know, if you're going to use this term, just say whether you're using it in a geophysical context or kind of a sociological context, and if, it use, and, it, and if people are using it in a form sociologically, then I would, I think your argument is very good and I would encourage you to promote it. Thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so you're, you're right. We are, you know, methane's more, has a greater radiative forcing effect than CO2, but as you say, it's, uh, it's but it's, there's a lot less of it. You know, the number one greenhouse gas is water vapour, you know, then CO2. So there's a few like methane which, which are there. So sure, managing it is an important contribution, but I would still, just, just purely empirically, you know, CO2's the... The monster that's got to be capped. Yeah, but sure, you know, if if we can, um, it's a great argument for veg, you know for being a vegetarian, really. And it, you know, and it's well, well, except you know the other problem with meat is the amount of land you need, you know, to feed to feed a cow, um, and the and the emissions that come from the from clearing the land and managing the land. So if you look at the whole. If you look at our whole food system in terms of carbon footprint, you know, it's hard to find an argument in favour of meat, to be honest, or, or red meat at least. Okay. Well, thank you very I much, say that Brendan. Red meat eaters. Yes, and. Uh... <laughs>